Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I invite Minister Pat up, who will preach this morning. Good morning, Crossbridge. Today, we are one step closer, one message closer to wrapping up this sermon series on Hebrews. Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Jesus, help us to know, know you that we may truly love you, and to love you that we may fully serve you, whom we worship with perfected joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So Hebrews 13 is filled with exhortations. The chapter opened with a message that urged us towards pure love. Last week, we were urged to submit to spiritual leaders. Before we look at the exhortations in today's text, let's review the life situation of the audience in Hebrews. Now, they were a minority group within a larger group of Jewish people. Scholars guesstimate that they were 200 Christian converts living among 10,000 Jews in the ancient and affluent city of Rome. That is just one in 50, or about 2% of that Jewish diaspora. Let me add some perspective to that 2%. According to the Joshua Project, the percentage of evangelical Christians in Japan today is, is less than 1%. That's half of that 2% threshold that missions organizations like the Joshua Project use to define an unreached people group. You see, unreached people groups are the hardest to reach with the gospel because of the very few Christian converts are constantly pressured to revert. The majority cultures exert extraordinary and powerful influence. Among the majority groups that resist religious conversion, some aggressively persecute Christian converts. You see, such cultural attitudes can be reflected in government policies that restrict religious practices. 
In Hebrews, you see the minority group of Christians suffered for leaving the old, old covenant of Judaism to join the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Wherever those Jewish Christians looked, they saw the synagogues. They heard the worship. They smelled the smoke of the sacrifice. Those were familiar reminders of what they left, and they weighed the loss of the past and the persecution in the present against the uncertainty of their future. To that pain of rejection, the author of Hebrews pointed to the hope through a renewed relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That is the main message of Hebrews and a challenge for us today. The author has shown Jesus Christ to be better, better than anyone or anything. He's better than the angels or Moses or high priests or of the law. He's better than the tabernacle or the temple and its sacrifices. Whatever those entities and institutions aspire to, Jesus is better. So follow along as I lead us through our text this morning. This is what I have planned for us. We will observe the security of an unchanging Jesus Christ. We will ponder the significance of the altar of Jesus Christ. And we will respond with our God-given and God-pleasing sacrifice. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have an altar to worship Jesus and to present him our sacrifices. That is what the author of Hebrews says in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is an easy verse to memorize. It is a key scripture that speaks to this remarkable truth. The Son of God is both fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ has been and remains unchanging. He is unshakable. He is the unshakable. He establishes that unshakable foundation of faith. So when you're stressed and maxed out, when you're ready to crawl back into bed and sleep the next days away, when you're worn out by spiritual attacks, when you're discouraged by the sin that clings, when your friends no longer have time for you, that's when you start to wonder, hey, maybe Jesus has changed his mind about me. Maybe he's given up on me. And he's left me to be lost among my struggles. And maybe this misery I feel is the punishment I deserve. Is this how you think? Is that what you're feeling today? Then pay attention, because God is speaking to you. Because Jesus Christ is unchanging, you can count on him forever. His goodness, love, and mercy endures forever. He is the solid rock upon whom you can build your life. You see, if Jesus is unchanging, his truth is unchanging. So if we believe Jesus Christ is unchanging by nature, then the truth established by his nature is also unchanging because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So then is the truth of his teachings. As a minister of the word and sacrament, I live by a solemn oath. Whatever I study, prepare, preach, and teach to you, from the Bible, is the whole truth 
and nothing but the truth. So help me God. I'm not looking to bring you some novel teaching from the Bible. I do not presume to discover some new truth in the Holy Scripture. So here is a word of advice to you. If someone claims to have insight about God that is brand new and that no one has heard about before, then please be skeptical. And if it fails the test of biblical orthodoxy, walk away from it. Have nothing to do with it. You see, whenever I open God's word to you, I seek to get you more deeply rooted in what's always been there, what has stood the test of time, truth that has been passed down by trustworthy followers of Christ, truth that established the oldest doctrines and the oldest creeds. You see, Jesus is the truth. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth of Jesus plus his Holy Spirit leads to true worship. He explained this to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23, saying, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. When you hold fast to Jesus, you live by truth and in his spirit. And in this way, you become the true worshipers. Do you see that definite article? Don't miss the the in John 4, 23. Together this morning, we worship God in spirit and truth. We can worship because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you hold fast to Jesus, he holds fast to you. If you build your life on his truth, you become like him. In verses 9 to 14, the author explains how holding fast to Jesus Christ produces a worship-shaped life in you. And verse 8 is the foundation of all of that. And because Jesus Christ is unchanging, his salvation is unchanging and stable. And because Jesus' salvation is secured, secured by his unchangeable nature, your faith is secure if your life is built on him. Where else would you look to build up your life? Yet, the creator knows his creation. He understands we are prone to wander. He understands how easily our hearts are pulled away. Stronger, faster, better, newer, fresher. These are, these are comparative adjectives that advertisers know all too well to use them to gain your attention. You see, their goal is to have you leave and cleave in order to take up what they're offering. Leaving and cleaving is how the Bible describes marriage. You see, as singles, we are to leave our families of origin so that we can cleave with our spouse. This process is beneficial when it's commendable. In such cases, you go from strength to strength and from good to better. But leaving and cleaving is harmful when it breaks a solemn and enduring pledge. You see, in June 1997, Sue and I, standing before God and in the witness of our family and friends, we exchanged marriage vows. The final phrases in those vows went like this, and forsaking all others, 
be faithful unto you so for so long as we both shall live. That was our solemn pledge to one another, an exclusive loyalty for the rest of our lives. We must honor and keep our pledges. The Bible uses a metaphor of marriage to characterize your relationship with your Savior, Jesus Christ. This is no coincidence. You, when you were saved by Jesus, you become his bride. He becomes your bridegroom. When you pray what is commonly called the sinner's prayer, you're making a vow. When you, by accepting God's offer of salvation, you pledge eternal loyalty to God through Jesus Christ. You pledge to forsake all others or anyone who would draw you away. You pledge to keep this vow forever. And because Jesus Christ is the same forever, the vow he makes to you is forever. Therefore, hold fast to Jesus Christ. Do not be led away or carried away. Is anyone or anything better than Jesus? No. The author of Hebrews has made his case. So what can you do if you begin to feel like you're being pulled away? What if your relationship with God is cooling or is cold? You see, the author answers in verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace is God's work. This is the good God who works in you. He can strengthen your heart. You've heard me say that the heart is the storehouse of your treasures. Your heart reflects your values, and it holds your valuables. Your heart is also the seat of your agency. It is the place from which you act, you work, and you project influence and power. And God strengthens your heart by his grace. Notice what grace is not. It's, grace is not legalism. God does not give you a litany of things to do to strengthen your heart. Instead, God gives us laws, laws to protect us from ourselves and from one another not to strengthen your heart. God gives us grace to establish our hearts in faith. The essence of your Christian life is to understand this. Grace is something that God does for you. The author explains, let your heart be strengthened by grace, not by following a list of rules. That's what is meant in verse 9. Not with foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. In other words, you've got to choose. You, you can have a heart that seeks to be strengthened by rules, or you can seek to have a heart that is strengthened by God's work through Jesus Christ for your sake. The core of your Christian life is not what you do for God. The center of the Christian life is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Of course, there are obligations to the Christian life. I'm not suggesting that there aren't. But that's not the essence or the core of our faith. The core is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ at the cross. So let's keep moving. The author says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent or tabernacle have no right to eat. It's clear to me that the author is addressing the vulnerable, those Christian converts from Judaism. In following Christ, they've left behind everything that once mattered. 
You see, Crossbridge, I realize that you've lost so much. And for some of you, what you've lost is too much to bear. Furthermore, this global health crisis has deprived us, deprived us of the peace, the prosperity, the services and goods. For many, the crisis has left you lonely, isolated, and deprived. You may feel that you've lost it all, and in this way, you can feel what those Jewish Christians felt. But those Hebrew Christians didn't lose the famine, war, or plague. Their Jewish neighbors blamed their loss because they started following Jesus. The Christians were rejected by their families. They were persecuted by their neighbors. They had their property seized. They lost their jobs and the means of supporting their families. They were mocked and ridiculed. Now, can you imagine the sort of heckling and taunts? Based on verse 10, it may have sounded something like this. Where's your altar? Mine is in Jerusalem at the temple. I know where my religion comes from. Do you know where yours is from? Or it might have sounded like something like this. Traitors, how dare you leave your people and our religion? Don't, can't you see that we're living among Gentiles? We Jews, we have to stick together. You see, how might those Jewish Christians have felt? How do you feel? Are we suffering for Christ? What sacrifices are we making to follow Jesus? To the Hebrew Christians, the author assures them, saying, we have an altar. Now, did you know that we Christians have an altar? Okay. I realize that may be a surprise for some of you. Of course, we don't have the kind of altar where you would bring an animal sacrifice. That's because the kind of worshiper who goes to that kind of altar puts their trust in an animal, puts their trust in what they can bring. But the altar of Christ, at the at altar of Christ, only the true worshiper is welcome. That's what verse 10 says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, at the altar of Christ, there's only one acceptable kind of sacrifice, and that sacrifice is always provided by God. That sacrifice is, always comes by grace. But to identify with Jesus, you will feel rejected. You will be mocked. You will suffer. As we see this in verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. To identify with Jesus, you must go to Jesus. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Just as the good shepherd was rejected and his sacrifice at the cross was dismissed, so too will you feel rejected. So too will you be mocked by your life. Identifying with Jesus may, mean, may mean that you bear reproach for Jesus' sake. See, Crossbridge, has following Jesus felt uncomfortable to you? See, sometimes, you know, that's the thing that we think about, our comfort. But Jesus was rejected. He was despised and mocked. Do you see what the author of Hebrews says to me, what he says to you? 
To identify and follow Jesus means your heart will need to change. And whatever contempt falls on Jesus, you can expect that to fall on you. How will you endure? Where will you find the courage? Look at verse 13. The words, let us, is a rallying cry. It's an imperative directed to a collective, to our community. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, how does this rallying cry that we would be brought up into scorn help? How does it make sense? It's a reminder of this core truth in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That is the reality. Crossbridge, I know that you know that you live for more than what you have in this life. But do you believe it? Has that knowledge strengthened your heart? This life is not all that there is. We understand that there's no continuing city here on earth because we seek the one that is to come. That is truth. But to believe and live for that truth requires courage. And that courage comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Worship at God's altar requires God's truth and God's spirit. Crossbridge, we can do it. But following Jesus means we experience what he did. That brings us to our final verses. Through him, then there, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifice are pleasing to God. Don't you love how the author puts verse 15? You see, the author is appealing to us. Strength comes from Jesus. Abide in him. John 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. God's truth enables you to live the Christian life. God's spirit enables you to live with boldness and joy. The author of Hebrews says, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Do you see that? Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do you ever think about how strange it is what we do here Sunday mornings? We all have friends who are non-Christians. How familiar are our non-Christian friends with church culture? How would they feel if they were sitting next to you during this service? Would they be shocked? After all, we have more than 100 people here singing all together. Do you find it strange, then, that non-Christians describe church services as uncomfortable, the singing of it? Think about a time that you sang with a lot of people whom you didn't know particularly well. You, you see, I really enjoy going to Fenway Park to watch the Red Sox play. And if you're a fan, then you know to sing along to what? Sweet Caroline, right? When the music fades, the fans know to shout what? So good, so good, so good. 
And so that's why people sing together. And what makes them sing with such passion? Because they feel that it matters. And singing together is never the same as singing alone. You see, some years ago, while I was waiting, I heard my friend Kenny singing in the shower. Later, I heard him sing the same song during worship set. It sounded different the second time. You see, and you, you, you see, by the way, that singing happened at Pilgrim Pines. So I'm really excited that in about a month, I'm going to go to Pilgrim Pines. Our Crossbridge Fellowships, ICF and Karis, will be there May 6th to 8th. So if you are in college or you're a young adult, please join us there if you can. So why did my friend's singing sound different the second time around? Well, let me explain using three words. People, place, and purpose. You see, first, people affect our behavior. Of course it does. We tend to put more effort in when we're doing it together with a shared vision, mission, and values. And then there's place. Place multiplies the impact of others on you. You know this. You experience the effect of isolation throughout this global health crisis. How can you possibly sing Sweet Caroline to a TV and compare it to the experience of singing it at Fenway Park? Likewise, singing with our fellowship band through YouTube cannot be the same as singing it together here at Crossbridge. And that brings me to our last word, purpose. People and place matter, but purpose is what makes singing with fans at Fenway different from singing with worshipers at Crossbridge. And this, I hope, is what your non-Christian friends will, will know and see when they come and visit. Crossbridge, why do we sing? We are singing, are we singing along because the worship band is playing our favorite songs? Do we sing because we think the worship band will do better? Or do we sing because it makes us feel good? I hope you can see that the answers are no, no, and no. It's not because we love to sing. We sing because we believe it pleases God when we worship Him in this way. Verse 15 are instructions for our worship. First, because all praise is done through him with him in mind. Let us worship God in truth. Second, because we are to praise God continually, let us worship God in spirit. Does this mean that we all should like sell our homes and move close to the church so we can be worshiping day and night? Well, see, the author of Hebrews explains the worship we do is a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of praise because for some of you, singing together does not come easily to you. You may be thinking, hmm, you know, I'll let them sing if that's their thing. It's not for me. In fact, I realize some of you gather at church for other reasons than singing. But hey, if praise feels like a sacrifice to you, then realize how much more precious that gift is to God. Some of you will sing anytime in the shower, in the car, at the gym. You love singing. It comes easy to you. It doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Well, God bless you. But there are others who are like me who prefer not to sing. You see, even at birthday parties, I feel uncomfortable singing. 
but I will sing the only way I know how to sing, which is out of tune. I sing because I want the birthday boy to know that I love him more than I hate my voice. Praise singing can feel a bit like that. We sing because we honor God by purposefully doing for him whatever pleases him. And that comes from verse 15. We see singing described as the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. That means the words are not directed to me or to you. It's directed to God. Our songs or worship are about God, and it's for him. He wants to hear the fruits of our lips. And if we begin feeling joyful and glad singing to God, all the more God is pleased by such worship. And finally and briefly, singing is not the only way to give God your sacrifice of praise. We see in verse 16, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's not just how we worship together, it's also how we treat one another. Wouldn't it be awful if after you praise God with someone in this room that you treated one another as strangers? Yet, I sometimes see this. I realize you aren't trying to be unfriendly to one another, but I think it's worthwhile to consider what God, what he is saying when he says to you, do good and share. For me, I find it helpful to identify with that Old Testament figure, Abraham. God blessed Abraham so that he would be a blessing to others. So I reflect on the ways that I've been blessed. And then emboldened by a grateful heart, I seek to bless someone else. You see, God's blessings become your spiritual gifts. Mobilize those gifts for God's glory. If you welcome suggestions, consider these. Consider the children's ministry. Consider joining the Afghan neighbor ministry. Consider the coffee ministry. Consider the small groups ministry. The point of all this is that living a spirit-filled life is a sacrifice of praise. It's a it is not, so it's not something that we want to separate, even if unintentionally. We don't want to separate the praise we sing with the praise we live. The sacrifice of praise you offer is God's grace at work in and through you. So hold fast to Jesus and his altar. Your heart will be strengthened by God's truth and filled by his Holy Spirit. And as your heart is filled up, it will literally warm up. That is your faith responding to God's glory. That's what the disciples felt on that road to Emmaus that you can read in Luke chapter 24. So if you will hold fast to Jesus, God will fan the flames of faith until your heart literally explodes with God's glory. And that is how God supplies you the sacrifice of praise. Will you bring that sacrifice of praise with you to Crossbridge? Will you do it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Son to whom we hold fast. Come, Spirit of God, and perfect the praises of your people. Grant them even now true sight of your glory and make them worthy at length to behold it unveiled forevermore. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.